Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Here on The Colour of Country Life, Flow FM, we're catching up with adjunct professor at the University of Queensland, Stephen Wilson. Stephen, uh, we saw the Premier of South Australia, Pella Malinowskis, on the 7.30 report uh, at the beginning of December, walking back some comments he'd made about nuclear. Welcome to Flow, Stephen, and what do you make of those comments? Oh, Ricky, thanks for having me on. Uh, It's great to talk to you. Yeah, I saw the interview last night on the 7.30 report um, with the South Australian Premier, Uh, it did look like he was, uh, as you say, he was sort of walking back maybe some earlier comments or quotes. Um, but actually, and he, he said, he, he basically delivered the party line, let's say, which is nuclear is too expensive. Um, but the thing that I thought was interesting was the example that he gave to back that up. Um, and he gave the example of the the big Hinkley Point C um, nuclear plant that's under construction in the UK and how much that is costing. So that's a large, you know, gigawatt class, 1,000 megawatt size um, reactors. And no one thinks that we're going to build those in Australia, I don't think. Um, I, I don't know anyone who's sort of for or against nuclear who's like very strongly saying that that's the kind of reactor we need to build. Uh, and so I just think it's interesting to note that. Yeah, absolutely. I do also suppose that there is, for the United Kingdom, uh, as they are sort of post-Brexit and also with a Russian uh, Vladimir Putin um, pretty dominant in the energy and military space there, they probably need to look a little bit more at very much big um, solutions to their energy security than, say, Australia does. Well, yeah, the UK is a very different um, place than Australia. You know, it's a a much more compact place. Uh, It's a larger economy. It's a larger power system. Um, they have experience, um, you know, from years past in building reactors. Uh, and as you say, um, gas security of supply is a real issue in Europe and, and, and also to an extent in the UK. And so having nuclear power plants definitely gives them a hedge against uh, gas prices and gas security of supply issues. And when you say um, they're larger, um, they're larger in the sense of demand, I imagine, on energy, whereas Australia's a larger geographical one, we have a lot more transmission yeah. losses. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, so the population is, is um, you know, two and a half times or something Australia's population. Um, and so the power system is, is naturally uh, bigger than our power system. But but as you say, yeah, our, so we've got a, a smaller economy, a smaller population, but we're very thinly spread. Um, thinly spread like Vegemite, Ricky. You know, the, the... <laughs> well, it depends who's spreading it, Stephen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so I know. I noticed that uh, Tanya Plibersek, the Environment Minister, in response to Peter Malinowskis, South Australian Premier's initial comments that he supported having a nuclear conversation off the back of rolling out uh, nuclear-powered submarines in South Australia, uh, she said, oh, well, some people seem to be talking about small reactors in every suburb. She at least, even though that's a bit of a a wild um, jab at the nuclear debate, she at least is on her radar that small reactors is what people are actually talking about for Australia. Yeah, I think everyone has at least heard um, now that there's a technology type called small modular reactors. Uh, you know, a few years ago, probably no one had ever heard of it, but I think now most people have heard of it. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, the Premier's comments um, really just reflect what millions of people are thinking, which is, well, 
if this technology is safe to put in the back of a submarine for propulsion, you know, with our sailors, uh, our submariners sleeping in the vessel not very far from the reactor, then surely it's uh, also safe to put these things on land and use them for power generation. Um, but, but the, I mean, the comment about, you know, a, a small modular reactor in every suburb and something about the local park, I thought that was pretty crazy. <laughs> I haven't heard anyone suggesting that no. you put these things down at the local park. No, but the hyperbole that's surrounding the energy debate is a build-up to Friday's, well, it's now going to be a virtual energy summit because Prime Minister Albanese is in COVID isolation. But what do you make of some of the commentary, including this talk of capping gas and coal prices uh, domestically? Well, it, the one thing that I think that's clear that I think everyone pretty much agrees on is that we are in a fairly serious crisis. Um, we probably haven't felt the worst of it yet because there's always time lags in how the you know the prices from international markets and wholesale prices you know ripple through to the retail markets. Uh, so there's still quite a bit of pain coming down the line for us, um, and. You know, we. I think w- what we're looking at um, is the result of some bad policy choices. Um, there's a lot of blaming of the Ukraine war going on, uh, and that is clearly a factor. But I don't think it's the only factor. Uh, and and I think we should look at Europe and we should ask ourselves what can we learn from the mistakes that the Europeans have made, and especially the mistakes that Germans have made, because. It's not like these these problems just popped up in uh, February this year. I mean, the, what we're looking at in Europe in terms of energy policy is the result of 20 years of blunders. And the three big blunders that the Germans made is, number one, naive over-reliance on wind and solar. Number two, neglecting the importance of gas security of supply. And number three, rejecting nuclear energy. And the temptation in Australia, Ricky, is to think that, you know, Germany far away, it's different, it's not relevant to us. But if you look at the energy policy settings in Australia, and again, these date back through governments of both political parties, you can see the same big three mistakes that the Germans have been making for 20 years being made in Australia. And when on that um, third point you make about nuclear, uh, I noticed that the European Union recently reclassified nuclear as being, in effect, green uh, when it comes to the concerns about climate change being a you know, zero-carbon uh, situation, one where you, uh, if you want to decarbonise, it's the direction to go. So even Germany, I think, are considering either stopping mothballing nuclear or going back in that direction, aren't they? Well, they, even Greta Thunberg stood up and said, you know, let's not close the last three nuclear plants in Germany. Oh, um, wow. We've we, got to we, find that quote. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty interesting. Uh, so they, they they made a... Well, in Germany, the, the there was always a minority slice of the, uh, of the body politic that was uh, opposed to nuclear energy. And what happened was after the events of Fukushima, they seized the moment and demanded the closure of their whole reactor fleet which uh, Angela Merkel agreed to. And so they closed uh, about half their fleet sort of very quickly. And then the the remaining half of their fleet was to come offline by the end of 2022. Um, And then this is like sort of perfect storm timing. Suddenly they they now realise they need that capacity. They shouldn't have closed any of it, in my view, if they're trying to reduce emissions. So I think there's, there's... there's come a realisation in, in Brussels and, and around the, the EU member states that 
if you want to reduce CO2 emissions or if, if you want to get anywhere near a zero emission electricity system, let alone whole energy system, let alone the whole economy, there's no way you can do that without nuclear power. Would it be a fair? Um, so that, yeah. Would it be fair for me to paraphrase some of what you're saying here, Stephen? Uh, is that um, you know you kind of got policy dinosaurs going around the energy space. Uh, you know the Labor side of politics often talks about being on the wrong side of history uh, on certain topics. Is there a risk that energy policy risks being on the wrong side of history in Australia about where we need to go? Whether if you've got concerns about climate change or energy security, nuclear needs to be part of the mix, which is what Peter Malinowski said but now he's crab walking away from. You're right. And there's too many people that are stuck, I think, in, in what I call 20th century thinking. Uh, and, and certainly that's the case in energy. There are people, I think my generation's the problem, to be honest, Ricky. You know, I used to be afraid of nuclear energy myself. You know, grew up in the Cold War, um, wrote my Year 12 English special essay on uh, Chernobyl, and and so it's it's my generation, you know, people in their 50s, and, and uh, I'm in my early 50s, you know, people in their 50s and 60s running the country and sitting on boards and influencing decision-making. And there's a lot of this sort of residual fear um, that dates from the Cold War. And, uh, you know, people, people haven't perhaps stood back and looked at the facts and the data and the evidence and, uh, you know, what we're trying to achieve. And if what we're trying to achieve is is reliable electricity supply that's reasonably affordable and internationally competitive uh, in a robust system, and by the way, with, with uh, no CO2 emissions, then nuclear energy is the only technology class that can actually tick all those boxes. Yep, it's a good point. Stephen Wilson, adjunct professor at University of Queensland. The irony's not lost on me that it may be not a cold war, but a hot war with Russia that has actually changed the debate. Thanks so much for joining us today on Flow. Thank you very much, Ricky. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.